0: So we have donut holes that are glazed, and then we have the chocolate raised, chocolate coconut raised, raised crumb, raised sugar, raised glazed. Then we have our old-fashioned, and that comes in a maple-flavored, a chocolate-flavored, glazed-flavored, and plain. Then we've also got the honey wheat, cinnamon sugar cake, chocolate cake, And then above that showcases the tray with the Oreo raised and the uh, raised sprinkles. This
1: is a lot of donuts.
0: Did I forget the jelly donuts? Yes, jelly, raspberry jelly. We do that in raspberry strawberry.
2: And this wasn't even all the donuts on offer that morning when Nikki and I visited Colonial Donuts in Oakland, California. As Nikki said, they make a lot of donuts. Oh my God, I feel like <laughs> a kid in a candy. Store. You are a kid in a donut shop is what you are. <laughs>
1: this entire episode, we are kids in a donut shop. We're also Gastropod,
2: the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. And in case you've gotten lost dreaming about chocolate glaze, this episode is, of course, about donuts. What are donuts and why doesn't the dough come with nuts? How did the
1: donut get its hole? Who first punched that one out? And more importantly, which bright spark figured out how to sell the holes
2: as well as the donuts? This episode, we answer all those pressing questions. Plus, we have the story of the rise of Duncan and the Donut King of California who held the Duncan invasion at bay. Gastropod is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network in partnership with Eater.
3: visit amazon.com/prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping and get all of our latest coverage at popsugarcom Juntos. con amor johanna
4: so people have been frying dough basically ever since they figured out that they could take some sort of a bread product and drop it into boiling fat.
1: This is Michael Krundel. He wrote a book about donuts called The Donut, History Recipes and Lore from Boston to Berlin.
4: We have recipes that go back to the Greeks where they made kind of what you find today called Lucumades. They had different names for them. There are records of... <sighs> various kinds of treats in the Middle East and
2: also in India and everywhere else, too. Everyone had them. But frying dough in oil is pretty expensive and it creates something that's pretty rich tasting. And so it's a treat. Also, donuts are by nature kind of a communal activity because donuts aren't difficult
4: to make. But you can't make one donut. You can't make two donuts or there's no point. Right. So you make dozens of donuts when you make dozens of donuts. You got to get rid of them because they're only good fresh.
2: And so since they're expensive and special, and because you need to have a community around to enjoy them, makes sense that donuts also became associated with holidays. They're really popular with Jews around Hanukkah because we're supposed to be celebrating the festival of oil. And so we eat fried treats like jelly donuts called sufganiyot. But we're certainly not alone in this. Other religions have donut festivals, too.
4: So in the Muslim world, there is a tradition of making various kinds of donuts for Ramadan, specifically for when the fast ends. And they're most famous in Central Europe and basically all Catholic parts of Europe for Fat Tuesday.
1: This is the day before the start of Lent, which is a 40-day countdown to Easter. And traditionally, Christians had to abstain from animal products for all 40 days. So they used it all up. All the butter and lard and pork fat all used up in one big go the day before.
4: What do you do with it? Well, you fry stuff in it. So one of the things that you would do is you would fry donuts. And there are these traditions of uh, making donuts in Germany, in France, in
2: uh, Italy. But these fried treats weren't always sweet because sugar was rare and expensive. Michael told us about what seems to be one of the earliest written recipes for what in Germany was called Krapfen. Those are the very, very early donuts. And we don't actually know how they were made.
4: They just tell you to make a kropfen, the name for donuts in those days, kropfen dough, and fill it with X. So they assumed that it would be more or less just a enriched bread dough. And so what you put into it, oh, is spinach, apples, and fish, and spices, perhaps some innards and spices.
1: I mean, kind of weird, but... Probably good. It's fried. What's not to love?
2: In any case, many of these fried treats from all sorts of communities around the world ended up, along with their immigrant owners, in America, the eventual home of the donut.
3: So most likely the donut is kind of a combination of all of these different multi-ethnic roots from different immigrants that came in in the 17th and 18th centuries. Bonnie Miller is
1: a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts, Boston.
3: The one that I think gets the most attention for the history of the donut is the Dutch. Um, They had something called the Alikea. The Ali Kayak is translated as oil cakes. The Dutch had
1: settled in New York or New Amsterdam, as it briefly was in the 1600s. And in their dialect, ollie was oil and cook was cake. Forgive my not great
2: pronunciation.
1: These days, the Dutch called donuts ollie Ballen, or oily balls,
2: which is super cute. The ollie cook looked like balls back in New Amsterdam, too. They were small round balls of fried dough that often had almonds, dried fruit and apples in them.
3: And they are kind of most well-known for being the, the origins of the donut for the American colonies. Donut is definitely more appealing of a name than oily cake,
1: just from a branding perspective. But I have to imagine this wasn't focus grouped back in the day. So where did the name donut come from?
3: I don't know if there's a definitive answer, but there are a couple of theories out there. One is that in the, the 17th and 18th centuries, they sometimes put a nut in the middle. So some believe that that's where it got that nut part of the name because obviously it's it's made of soft dough so the dough plus the nut
2: that's one theory the other one has to do with the size these balls of dough were often about the size of a walnut in a shell which is about the size of a ping pong ball maybe a little bigger
4: and there are recipes that describe how to make these and sometimes they would describe them as doughnuts sometimes they describe them as pin cushions because they might be cut square
1: yes indeed the square doughnut is not a hipster invention So who coined this magical word donut? What's the first use in print?
3: A lot of people attribute the name to Washington Irving. He published a book in 1809, The History of New York.
2: You may know him better as the guy who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. In
3: The History of New York, he claims that early New Yorkers would feast on donuts that were made from hog fat.
1: These were served at tea parties, which Washington Irving calls delectable orgies, held by the upper classes, aka such as kept their own cows and drove their own wagons. There might be pie, there might be fried pork, but according to Irving, the table was always sure to
2: boast of an enormous dish of balls of sweetened dough fried in hogs fat and called donuts or ollie coke. This feast sounds like a pretty good time, but it turns out that Washington Irving wasn't the first to use the word donut in print. It had already appeared a couple of years earlier. It
3: was published in an 1803 edition of Susanna Carter's The Frugal Housewife or Complete Woman Cook which was a recipe book. It had multiple editions, but the 1803 edition was the first one that actually had a donut recipe.
2: Whatever their origin, the fried donut things came in all kinds of shapes. They came in squares. They came in round blobs. They came in twists. But it seems like among the most popular were these little balls, and they were kind of like an early cliff bar.
4: And they seem to be popular. They're very much homemade. They shoved them into their pockets and kind of like go on hikes. And if you need uh, some quick energy, you pop a few of these into your mouth. There's a Henry David Thoreau in one of his books where he fills his pockets with these donuts and starts walking through New England.
1: Just the ticket to fuel some meditations on landscape and nature and getting away from frivolous things. And that kind of philosophical thinking is all very well. But really, the important question is... How did the donut get its hole?
2: The story goes that it's all due to a guy who worked on a boat as a teenager in the mid-1800s. His name was Hanson Gregory. Michael says Hanson told this tale in the early 1900s. According to his story, his job on the ship was to make the donuts.
4: And he thought, well, I can just knock out that center. And voila, he was, as he described himself, the Columbus of the donut. And so Columbus comes home to his mom in Maine. And explains to mom how to make a donut. This spreads throughout New England and the holy donut is born. Now, there's so many problems with this.
1: Starting with problem number one from my perspective, which is a hole means there's less donut. So why is that a good thing? Why would you even want to do it?
2: Well, it turns out that the original donuts were leavened with yeast. But in the 1800s, baking powder was invented. That meant the donuts rose much more quickly, which is great. But here's the problem. If you drop a little, uh,
4: like a donut hole equivalent, right, into the fat, it'll cook up fine. But if you do anything a little bit bigger, because there's so much sugar in the dough, the outside will burn before the inside cooks through. And so somebody along the way discovered that, hey, we got this big thing, the inside isn't cooking through, what do we do? We knock out the middle.
1: So by putting a hole in his donuts, Hanson Gregory was really onto something. But the other problem is that he wasn't the first. Other people had put a hole in a donut before young Hansen.
4: And just exactly when this happened, is a little bit unclear, because there are versions of holy donuts, for example, in North Africa that go way, way, way back.
2: But in America, recipes for donuts with holes in the middle showed up a couple of years before Hansen's claimed seafaring Columbus donut discovery. So while maybe he did knock out the donut centers while he was on the boat there's basically almost a 0% chance that he actually invented the ring-shaped donut.
1: Hansen or no, these newfangled, baking-powder-leavened, cakey
2: rings caught on. For one, because they're super quick to make. And weirdly, they seem to have been particularly popular around New England and also New York. Other places in America did make them. But often the treats were referred to in cookbooks as New England donuts, though frankly, nobody really knows why. Maybe we just had the nation's most intense sweet tooth at the time. So by the end of the
1: 1800s, donuts have a hole that they're like the donuts we know and love today, but they were still sort of seen as a regional treat. They're kind of niche.
4: Then the First World War comes around. And one of the things that happens in the First World War is that, of course, you've got the military, but then you have need support staff. And it wasn't professionalized at that point. So, for example, the medical issues were dealt with by the Red Cross. And another group that came in for reasons of um, morale, I guess you could say, was the Salvation Army.
2: The people who worked for the Salvation Army in World War One were mostly women, and they were sent over to Europe to help keep up the spirits of the boys from back home.
3: The funny part is that they were called doughboys, though it had nothing to do with the fact that they were consuming donuts. It actually had to do with the fact that they were eating dumplings back in the Civil War that they were called doughboys. Um, But the Doughboys
1: were eating lots of donuts. Because donuts, specifically donuts made by young ladies, was how the Salvation Army ended up trying to boost morale, which really needed to be boosted because conditions on the Western Front were horrific.
4: They're waist-deep in mud. They're being shelled and killed and maimed left, right, and center. So something to remind them of home. And so the first thing that the Salvation Army young women did was they tried to make pies. The problem with a pie is you need apples, you need an oven, and you need the sugar and the dough and all that sort of thing, of course. And you're trying to do this with the, bombs falling on you and the rain pouring down and you name it. it turned out it was just incredibly difficult to do.
2: One of the women with the Salvation Army named Helen Perviance, she came up with the idea that instead of focusing on pies, they'd branch out into donuts.
4: because all you need for donuts is a little bit of dough. You need some fat, a bit of sugar, that's about it. And you can make them quickly when they're freshly made. Even the worst possible donuts actually taste pretty good.
1: And donuts did the trick in terms of comfort and morale. In fact, soldiers got really attached to and emotional about the Salvation Army donuts.
5: Don't forget the Salvation Army. Always remember my donut girl. She brought them donuts and coffee. When a donut
1: truck got stuck in mud in no man's land, it was national news back home.
4: And these are supposed to be the donuts that were going to be delivered for Easter. And. It was so notable that the New York Times, which in those days came out with several editions, would have in the morning edition, "Okay, this is what's going on with the donut truck. Evening edition, this is what's going on with the donut truck. Morning edition, this is what's going on with the donut truck.
2: The Germans bombed for days. The Americans sent out a mission to try to rescue their donut truck, but they couldn't get there in time. The truck and its delicious contents were blown to bits to the great dismay of American soldiers and the American public.
1: Frankly, it's a miracle we ended up winning the war after a blow like that. The point is, donuts had become beloved by Americans from all across the country. They were a symbol of all things good and American.
2: At around the same time as donuts were claiming their place in American hearts, an immigrant from Bulgaria named Adolf Levitt put his mind to solving the problem of how to get more donuts more quickly into American stomachs.
3: So what Adolf Levitt did is he hired an engineer and he created an automated donut machine. And this was the inflection point. I mean, he started to hawk this machine to every bakery he could. And as a result, he vastly increased the consumption of donuts across New York City originally, and then it started to spread to other cities as well.
4: So he uh, eventually uh, founds a corporation called the Donut Corporation of America. And very much like today inkjet printers are more or less given away but where they get you is with the ink right so that you buy the inkjet printer for a few bucks and then the ink costs you thousands of dollars over the life of the inkjet printer so he does somewhat the same thing he makes these gadgets for making donuts but you have to use his mix And it's with this mix that he makes huge amounts of money.
1: Levitt was not a modest mouse, and he called his contraption the, quote, wonderful, almost human donut machine. He rented a storefront on Times Square and set up the wonderful almost human
2: donut machine in the window so he could stop traffic with the spectacle. Levitt was also the one who made our current lives more complicated by trying to change the spelling of the treat. He put out a press release in 1920 that promoted donut spelled D-O-N-U-T instead of D-O-U-G-H-N-U-T so that it could be easily spelled and pronounced everywhere in the world. He wanted there to be no obstacle to donut's world dominance.
1: And he also did all. All sorts of fun things to promote donuts, including donut queen beauty pageants, which you have to see the photos to believe we're putting those in our supporters newsletter,
2: which you can get by supporting the show gastropod.com support. And Levitt was savvy enough to provide his schmancy donut making machines to the Red Cross during World War II to make sure the boys always had their donuts. course, he didn't provide the mix for free. He made some bucks off the U.S. Army for that.
1: All of this means that by the end of World War II, the donut was poised to take over the universe. Starting with Quincy, Massachusetts. The story of Duncan coming up after the break.
5: Fox Creative.
2: This is advertiser content from
0: 26.2 Team Milk and their new docuseries, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I did it.
5: My name is Bob Rosenberg. For 35 years, I was the CEO of Dunkin' Donuts, now renamed Dunkin' Brands. Yes, that is, in fact, the
2: former head of Dunkin' Donuts. He's also the son of the original founder, Bill Rosenberg, and he recently wrote a book called Around the Corner to Around the World, A Dozen Lessons I Learned Running Dunkin' Donuts. If you haven't heard of Dunkin' before, I'm kind of shocked because even if you don't live in the U.S., it's a thing. Chances are there's at least one in your country somewhere.
5: It's it's big. It has grown to something over 13,000 locations in 40 countries around the world. Basically, it services about uh, 3 million customers a day, sell 2 million cups of coffee a day, and about 3 million donuts a day.
1: And all of this from humble beginnings. Bob's dad, Bill, was born in
3: 1916. His parents were immigrants. He grew up from a working class Jewish family, didn't have a lot of money.
5: He dropped out of school in the eighth grade. He was a child of the Depression. Uh, His father had seen his father fail in the supermarket business and had to go to work to help support his family when he was a kid.
2: After World War II, Bill did a bunch of jobs, and he ended up in a business in Connecticut that owned trucks, that provided food at factories, and on construction sites.
5: Uh, Coffee, donuts, and sandwiches. And he brought that business back to Boston and started a similar business in Boston and grew that business from 1945 to 46 to about 1948, 49, very successfully.
1: Donuts were certainly more popular than ever after World War II. But although business was good, it soon faced an existential threat.
5: In the years uh, after the war, there was the invention of vending machines. They started to be populated in all of these small locations, small offices and small factory sites, where it was more convenient for the, uh, the workers, rather than go outside and stand in the rain or in the snow, they get their coffee and they could get it inside.
2: At this point, Bill had a partner in the business. The two of them heard that a brick and mortar store selling donuts nearby was doing pretty well. In fact, it was doing better in that one store than Bill's 20 or so trucks.
5: So in 1948, they opened something called the Open Kettle. For $25 a month rent on the Southern Artery in Quincy, Massachusetts, they opened a donut shop serving fresh hot donuts and delicious coffee.
3: They named it Open Kettle because you fry donuts in a large open kettle of, of oil. And that became their first storefront. Interestingly enough, they had seating in open kettle, which was very different from other donut places before. It may even have been the first to actually have a place where people could sit and linger and have their coffee and donuts. Which sounds like a recipe for success. And it totally
1: wasn't. That first open kettle storefront didn't lose money, but it didn't really
2: make much more than a truck.
5: And uh, certainly wasn't the answer they were looking for.
2: Bill and his partner heard that someone else was going to open a donut store nearby, and they poached that guy's architect.
5: He came in, he said, you know, (laughs) this sort of stucco hut with no windows isn't a good place to showcase your business. Really, what you got to do is rip it down and put in a California style store, change the name open kettle, no one knows what you're selling inside. And so that's exactly what the partners did in an attempt to salvage their their dream of a bigger business. And they ripped it down in the 1950, $1,000 a week, open kettle closed and it was reopened with a $5,500 a week Dunkin Donut shop that had a California style see through fishbowl kind of effect all glass could look into the kitchen and watch the donuts being made.
1: California style is very cool, of course, and seeing donuts get made does tend to make you want to eat one. But the other big boost was the new name.
5: They were sitting around deciding Open Kettle wasn't a particularly good name. What could they select? And they were doing a sort of a brainstorming. And someone said, you pick a chicken, you dunk a donut. And uh, my dad said, well, that's the name.
2: At the time, dunking a donut in a cup of coffee was actually super common. Adolph Levitt had popularized it back in the 20s and 30s. There were donut dunking competitions. There was a donut dunking stand at the World's Fair in the 1930s. He hired Shirley Temple to make a movie called Dora's Dunking Donut. <laughs>
1: One of the most bananas stunts Levitt pulled was hiring a guy called Alvin Shipwreck Kelly, who was apparently a famous flagpole sitter, which is a thing people used to do in the 1920s as a test of endurance. Alvin dunked and ate 13 donuts while doing a headstand on a plank that was hanging over the edge of the 54th story of a building in New York City. Rather him than me. There
2: were comedy bits about dunking donuts, and even the movie star Clark Gable got in on the act. In the movie It Happened One Night, Clark Gable's character, a reporter, teaches an heiress how to appropriately dunk a donut.
6: Oh, now don't you start telling me I shouldn't dunk. Of course you shouldn't. You don't know how to do it. Dunking's an art. Don't let it soak so long. A dip and flop in your mouth. You let to hang there too long it you soft and fall off. It's all a matter of timing. Oh, I'll write a book about it.
7: <laughs> Thanks,
6: Professor. She told so, Twenty millions and you don't know how to dump.
1: Dunking was such a big deal in those days that the brand new Dunkin' Donuts even made a special donut with a handle to help dunkers dunk more elegantly.
2: That wasn't the only special aspect of their donuts. The other was the shocking amount of variety that you could find in this new, light-filled, modern donut shop. At the time, most of their competitors only had a few options. You know, glaze, chocolate, cake, whatever.
3: Howard Johnson was an important inspiration for Bill Rosenberg. And Bill Rosenberg saw that Howard Johnson's offered 28 flavors of ice cream, and that kind of inspired him towards having as big a variety as possible. And Bill Rosenberg was a visionary. I mean, he always took everything to the extreme. So he decided that he wanted to have 52 flavors of donuts. Initially, his thought was they would have one new one per week. And for the first couple of decades, they offered 52 varieties of donuts. All these good ideas
1: added up to a magic formula. Dunkin' Donuts took off. But Bob says it was also a little bit of being in the right place at the right time.
5: It, I would call it trends aligned. There were massive changes. Uh, the highway system came into existence then under the Eisenhower administration. People started to take to the suburbs. Women, because of the Second World War, had entered the workforce. And out of economic necessity or out of desire to be able to add additional income, the growth in women away from home, uh, working away from, from home and food away from home started to take effect. And this was sort of the tailwind, the trailing wind that built this whole industry.
2: There's one other thing that made these new donut shops succeed, and it's that they were open super early in the morning. They were kind of the only ones.
5: There were no real breakfast places open in those days other than McDonald's, which I don't think started to serve breakfast until the mid-70s. So if you were on the way to work and you needed... You know, a pick-me-up and a start to your day, there was few options.
1: This also explains why cops became so associated with donuts. Cops are out on patrol at all hours, and if they wanted to stop for a quick coffee and a snack
2: to go,
3: they didn't have a lot of other options.
2: And so it's not really surprising that Duncan became a huge success. They started to grow and open new stores.
3: But the reality is, it was their business model more than it was their menu that made them so successful. And their business model had to do with franchising.
2: In case you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it or heard our episode on McDonald's, just a quick reminder that franchising is when you basically sell the name and recipe for success to other folks who kind of independently run each store.
3: And post-World War II was the era of these new fast food chains that were arising and the role of franchising being really key for that. Bill Rosenberg founds the International Franchising Association in 1959, so he was a leader in the industry. By the 60s, everything was going great for Duncan.
1: But remember, Bill was an eighth grade dropout. He'd obviously learned a ton on the job and had been super successful, but he didn't feel like he
3: had what it took to keep that growth going. So even though he was only 47, he stepped down. In 1963... Bill Rosenberg passes the torch to his son, Bob Rosenberg, who begins to be CEO. And Bob Rosenberg at the time He's fresh out of Harvard Business School.
5: And uh, I was green. I was 25 years old.
2: Bob was young, but he started off strong, and he had a series of quick successes that grew the business. One of the secrets to his success was great advertising campaigns. And if you were in the U.S. in the 70s and 80s, one of these campaigns will likely be stuck in your head forever.
5: Time to make the donuts. We hired a guy by the name of Michael Vale to be Fred the Donut Maker, to show the competitive advantage of our product being made fresh. Every four hours. Time to make the donuts. The donuts. It isn't easy owning a Dunkin' Donuts. To
6: make the donuts. Because unlike most supermarkets, we make our donuts fresh day and
5: night. But the guys who make supermarket donuts are still in bed.
1: Side note Dunkin typically doesn't make their donuts fresh in store anymore. They haven't for several decades now. Streamlining donut production is part of how they continue to grow.
3: They also don't make that special donut with the handle for dunking anymore, sadly. It lasted up until 2003. It was finally discontinued because it was a tremendous hassle for the bakers because they couldn't automate the making of the Dunkin' Donut
2: because of the handle. But it wasn't all streamlining. They added new things, too. There's one product in particular that helped them grow even bigger, and it's probably the most common way I ate donuts as a kid, the munchkin, the donut hole. At one point, though, that was a special once-a-year treat.
5: We would pick up the centers at Halloween time, and we'd put them on the, on a sheet or screen and fry them and put them into little cellophane bags that, and then hang them on. Little holders like you would get in most convenience stores where you would buy potato chips or something like that. But it was only at Halloween, and they were sold in only three varieties of cake product. There was plain cinnamon and sugar, and uh, it was only a seasonal product.
1: And then in 1972, which was a tough time for Duncan and for business generally, Bob got a call from one of his franchise owners in Connecticut. This guy was also called Bob.
5: He said, Edna, my wife, has found a way to sell these donut holes and we're doing gangbuster business. So I said, no, no, you you know, we used to sell these little things, they never work. He said, no, you have to understand, Edna has developed a different cutter. It's much bigger and she's doing yeast donuts as well as cake, she's filling them, she's frosting them, she's doing all kinds of things, piling the high in the front case and our business is up something like 20%. Well, 20% increase in business, certainly my ears, perked up.
2: So, of course, Bob got himself down to Connecticut, and sure enough, those donut holes looked great and were selling like hotcakes. Bob's smart enough to steal a good idea when he sees one, so he made it a national thing, and they called the new invention Munchkins, after The Wizard of Oz.
6: People kept telling my mother, I look like a munchkin. <laughs> well, this is what a munchkin
5: looks like. They have them down at Dunkin' Donuts, in quite a few flavors, like... Tilly jelly. And... Cheery chocolate. cream. And...
7: Duncan, the magic
5: munchkin. <laughs> and it really was a real salvation, a real important Im- impact in on the 1972 life uh, during the oil embargo and gas rationing time. Our sales, again, were up about 12 or 15% with the introduction of munchkins.
1: So at this point, it seems like there's no stopping Duncan. But that's only if you don't consider California, which was the personal fiefdom of the Donut King. We went to California to tell his story that's coming up after the break.
0: My name is Ping Yamamoto, and we're at Colonial Donuts here in Oakland on Lakeshore Avenue, 3318 Lakeshore.
2: Ping's parents owned this very donut store for nearly 40 years. Nikki and I visited early one Friday morning, and it was, of course, time to make the donuts. The dough, we already mix it. Right now, we put over here. We're going to drop it. You see that?
1: How long are they in there?
6: Uh, This one, I put for three minutes.
1: And what are you using to move them around?
6: This one is called chopstick right there. Just
2: flip it. <laughs> so this one I put for three minutes, and then wait for three minutes, yeah. There
1: is definitely an art to making donuts. Shaping them, flipping them, keeping the oil at exactly the right temperature. But although you can make unlimited varieties by switching up the flavors and toppings, Bob told us basically there's just three mixes three different recipes that are used as the basis for all the different donuts.
5: There is a cake mix, which is leavened by baking soda, which is very cakey, made of soft wheat. There is a yeast product that's leavened by yeast, and that makes the rings that you see, the fluffy rings. And then there's a a cruller mix, which is nothing more than a popover fried which is what a French cruller is. It's It's got eggs and flour.
2: At Colonial, they riff off those basic recipes and make around 50 different varieties. Ping would have handed us as many as we wanted to try, but there's only so many donuts a person can eat at any one time. We had to be a little choosy. We need to try a cruller. We need to try a raised. Maybe we, an ube cake? Yeah, I we think have we should try an ube cake. I know. There, It's decisions.
1: So many decisions we basically kind of gave up and ended up with eight donuts which was really too many for two people
2: but we suffer for our art. We started with the donut of my childhood and the one I always think of as my favorite which was a yeasted donut with a chocolate glaze. Oh yeah this is my this is my typical donut. Mm, it's still my favorite donut mm. so far. I like the chewiness I like the airiness I like the chocolate glaze on it.
1: Listen this is a very good version of a classic donut. I just. Was too light and fluffy for me. Then we moved on to one that is apparently very traditional, but was new to me—a buttermilk cake donut. This is a much more substantial and dense. Yes, it is.
2: It is cake-like. Mmm. A little tangy. Oh, really good. I've never had this before.
1: This is delicious <laughs> recipe my whole life.
2: And then we moved on to an ube donut. Ube is a dark purple and super sweet tuber. And the donut also had lots of crunchy bits all around it. All right, this is a beautiful purple. It is. On the oh. inside too. It has sweet potato and ube in it. Mmm. That was really good. I like the crunch of the like extra crispy cake, cake crumb bits around it. It's so soft and so cakey and not too sweet at all, and the flavor is incredible. This is a dream. It might be my new favorite. While we
1: snarfed up Ping's Delicious Donuts, she told us a little bit about her story. She'd only recently come back to work in the family business. Previously, she'd had a tech job in Silicon Valley. But she basically grew up in her parents' donut stores.
0: Growing up, you know, I was... At school, I was called the Donut Princess because everyone knew <laughs> that my parents had owned the local store, you know, donut shop, and so it was it was almost expected that for my birthday, I brought in donuts for everyone. So
2: <laughs> she didn't just eat the donuts; she started working in the shop too.
0: Absolutely, I started at nine, nine years old, and I still remember learning how my mom was trying to teach me yeah. to do the change, and I just like could not get it.
2: <laughs> Ping's
0: parents were refugees from Cambodia. My dad was in the war for four years, my mom five, an extra year because she was a refugee in Thailand.
2: In the 1970s in Cambodia, there was a civil war. Here's a very basic overview of a very complicated political situation that America was also involved in. But overall, the Khmer Rouge took over the country and Pol Pot became the dictator. This is from an episode of the TV news show Dateline from
5: 1975. The Khmer Rouge captured Phnom Penh. They evacuated the capital...
4: 2 million
5: people, including thousands of hospital patients, were forced onto the road and marched into the countryside.
1: Pol Pot, the leader of the Khmer Rouge, he had this idea that everyone should work the land. Intellectuals or people with Western connections were mostly executed and families were sent out to the fields where they were
2: split up with kids as young as six taken away from their parents. Estimates are that between one and a half and three million people died during this time and those who could get out, got out. About 150,000 Cambodians came to the U.S.
0: And my aunt, who was already in the States, she um, ventured to California because she heard that there was a lot of, you know, donut businesses that are making money and you know that's the american dream right they want to own something and you know have some something to do that you know it's hard working but something that they can do
1: turns out This is a story you can hear about donut shops all over California.
7: Yeah, so my family, both sides of my family are Cambodian refugees. They came escaping the genocide, the Khmer Rouge that happened. Uh, My dad, who was like in his teenage years, was forced to build trenches or like really rudimentary dams. Other people had to farm. So my mom was doing rice.
2: Michelle Sue's parents escaped the Khmer Rouge and ended up in California, in their case, LA. And like Ping's parents, they too ended up owning a donut shop.
7: At nighttime, I would learn to fall asleep on the benches that we had um, because we would clean everything up. We, my brother and I would, you know, have our chores basically, like instead of chores at home, it was chores at the donut shop. We also had weddings for family weddings. When those ended, we still had to go back to the donut shop. And so instead of, you know, returning home, we would have to run in our like wedding dress, guest dressed attire to close up. Donuts were life for Michelle. Her
1: uncles and her whole family, they pretty much all own donut shops and were in the donut business.
7: And I had no idea. Like I knew the circle that I lived in in Southern California as family. And so I just thought it was like a funny coincidence that so many of my family members own these donut shops. But I had no idea that it was a true community of people. And that's beyond just the family members that I know, but rather a whole community of immigrants that had found a way to to start a life in A country like this where it's undoubtedly difficult to find a way through without a lot of education or opportunities to have education.
2: One thing they could do was own a donut shop. Turns out that today 90 percent of all the independent donut shops in California are owned by Cambodian refugees and that's because of one guy, Ted Noy, the donut king of California. He got out of Cambodia just before the Khmer Rouge took over and he was a refugee in Southern California where he was working at a gas station.
6: I remember it was a slow night, about midnight, and there's no traffic. I you run real fast, come to this window right here. And I say, lady, I would like to buy some donut. Say, okay, I sell you uh, a dozen donut. I fall in love with donut from that moment that I have a bite.
1: This is Ted himself,
6: the Donut King,
1: from a documentary about his life called, you guessed it, The Donut King.
6: So and I ask, lady. If uh, I can say up to 3000 uh, do you think I can open a donut shop like this? And she said, no, don't open your own donut shop. Just go to learn from Winchell.
1: Winchell's is still a big donut chain in California, and Ted took the lady's advice. He completed their three-month training program. He took over a Winchell's shop in Orange County, and he and his wife Christy worked and worked and saved and saved. For one, they didn't
2: hire anybody, they just did everything themselves. Cutting down on payroll meant that soon they'd saved up enough money to buy their own donut shop, which they named Christie's. They were still running the Winchells, and then they kept buying more and more donut shops until they owned 25 of them. Ted and Christie were some of the earliest refugees from Cambodia to arrive in the US. To get out of the
1: camps, you had to have a sponsor. And so Ted started to sponsor other families, and because he was so successful, Lots of his fellow Cambodian immigrants came to him to figure out how to also be successful in America. And he showed them all the way of the donut.
6: Me and Christy, we talk among ourselves. Then we kind of create leasing program. One store, after overhead, we make $7,000 net. I list out for 3000 Let family make 4000 I only see two Cambodian Americans.
2: One Cambodian family then taught another and another, like how Ping's aunt heard about it and then told her parents. All the Cambodian refugees learned they could make a living and a life in California by owning a donut shop.
7: And so you'll see a lot of donut shops that are independently owned but are connected one way or another, either through uh, relatives or community, just, you know, family and friends.
0: When you come to a country that, without an education and you can work hard and still make a living, I think it's it's something that they're like, hey... We could do this.
1: And they did. And because there were so many of them and they worked so hard and kept payroll so low by putting their entire families to work, these Cambodian American indie donut shops were able to hold even the mighty Dunkin' Donuts at bay.
6: Dunkin had to make at least 50000 a month for survive. And
5: Kevin Rice shop, make $10,000, I can survive. <laughs> and I didn't have enough ad dollars at the time to have national advertising. So as a result of that, I pretty much stayed away. Tried a couple of abortive attempts, but basically I stayed away from the West Coast and was not particularly successful in the few forays I had.
2: While Cambodian immigrants claimed the West Coast donut scene, Bob worked with plenty of immigrants in Duncan's markets. They mostly franchised to immigrants from the Azores on the East Coast and from India and Pakistan in the Midwest.
1: And that's been a big part of Duncan's success story, too. All of which meant that Just a few years ago, Duncan got big enough to try its luck in California again.
5: Today, that's a different story. Today, Duncan has tens of millions, maybe 50, 60, 70 million dollars worth of ad weight that they can use on TV. And the fact that they can do it under a brand where the the Cambodians had individual stores, didn't have access to a central company to create new products, new marketing techniques. Uh, They're now, I think, very successfully embarking on developing the West Coast.
1: Since 2014, Los Angeles and San Francisco each have a handful of Dunkin' stores, and the brand has big expansion plans. But even still, this is not a tale of Goliath-crushing David. Dunkin' has come to California, but the Cambodian independents have stayed, and now there's just more donuts to go around. In the documentary about Ted, there's an incredible stat that in the U.S., there's about one donut shop for every 30,000 people on average. In L.A., we've got one shop for every 7,000.
2: A similar kind of donut war played out when the chain Krispy Kreme started leaving its stronghold in the southeast and attempting to encroach on Dunkin's territory. We'll tell you about that in our special supporters newsletter. Needless to say, it ends with more donuts all around. Even the more recent hipster donut and cronut trends... All they've done is keep
1: increasing the overall donut pie, so to speak.
2: And to be honest, Dunkin' Donuts doesn't mind all this donut competition because these days they've actually officially changed their name to Dunkin'. It's honestly more about the coffee today than the donuts.
5: The the business has has migrated and changed over the years. When I first became CEO in 1963, it was 60% donuts and 40% beverages, and that's all flipped between beverages and snacks, including donuts. America runs on Dunkin'. America runs on
1: Dunkin'. America runs on Dunkin'. This is Dunkin's current advertising slogan, no more time to make the donuts. Instead, it's all about America and where America goes to get caffeinated. I mean you're not running on a donut, are you?
2: And this next bit isn't about donuts exactly, but we couldn't ignore it. We don't get many excuses to get Hollywood A-list celebrities on the show. In Boston, Dunkin's home turf, the most all-American local boy who's regularly seen getting caffeinated with his large iced Dunkin' coffee in hand is Ben Affleck. And earlier this year, he, well, let's just say he took on a bit of a side hustle. Talk about, wow, some customers at a Dunkin' drive through near Boston got quite a surprise today.
0: I pulled up and there he was, handing me my iced coffee. He was actually really funny, super, super nice, really funny, and everything I expected him to be, he was. Ben Affleck
1: work in the window. A little side hustle that ended up as a Super Bowl commercial. Welcome to
3: Dunkin' the New Special. Dunkin' Run, medium or large coffee, get a donut
5: for an incremental dollar. What
3: are you doing here? Passing me. Is this house. what you do when you say you want to work all
5: day? I, I gotta go, guys.
3: Grab me a glaze.
1: JLo loves a glazed donut, supposedly. Ben clearly loves his Dunkin'. But really, everyone loves
2: donuts. Everybody.
5: All age groups, all, all socioeconomic.
2: Everyone around the world, too. As we've said, almost every culture has some sort of fried donutty type food. But really, the donuts we know and love were invented and perfected here. They've become kind of quintessentially American. In Europe, donuts were a special occasion treat.
4: You would have them on special holidays a few times a year. Here they became every day. And one of the things about American food is abundance and ubiquity. So that these special occasion foods are something that you can have day in and day out for, in the case of donuts, breakfast, lunch, and dinner.
1: Every day is special in America. But also, donuts are part of the immigrant story that's so central to this
4: country. In that way, they have brought different kinds of cultures to the United States. And these have melded and blended and turned into, you know, the melting pot of donut dough.
1: Another way the donut story is all American is that it's really all about that small business entrepreneurial spirit. Even though Duncan is so huge, donuts are one of the strongholds of the indies in corporate America. And
3: that's kind of cool. Actually, in terms of profit, small operators, small donut shops and chains are roughly equivalent in sales to the combination of Dunkin' Donuts and Krispy Kreme combined. So there's been an amazing persistence to independent and small chain operators that I think allow for more innovation. And I think that's where you see more of these um, specialty donuts and different flavors and culinary innovation coming out because they're able to do that for their customers.
2: And maybe because of all of that, these shops are often about more than donuts. They're about community. They're a place where you can run into people you know and buy a box to take with you to share.
0: It's the nostalgic feeling of warmth and comfort and security. And I think and I hope that's what our donuts bring for people. And that's why they keep coming.
1: Thanks this episode to Ping Yamamoto of Colonial Donuts in Oakland. I can't stop dreaming about their ube cake ring. And to Michelle Su. She's helped gather the stories of the second and third generation Cambodian-American kids who grew up in
2: their family's donut shops at Pink Box Stories. Links to that online. Thanks also to Michael Crandall, Bonnie Miller, and Bob Rosenberg. We have links to their books and research on our website, gastropod.com. And thanks, as always, to our fabulous producer, Claudia Geib. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Till then. More to-dos, less
1: time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals.